Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me, Bobby Bascom, at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. This week, three Caribbean storytellers remember holiday season traditions in the tropics. For me, Christmas is you wake up in the morning to scratch bands singing and dancing, and they're singing, good morning, good morning, I come for my guava berry. Good morning, good morning, put it on the table. On some islands, the biggest anticipation for kids isn't for Christmas or New Year's, but Three Kings Day, when you had to impress the Magi and prove you were really good by... Leaving delicious fresh grass for their camels in our shoes and leaving some water for the Three Kings to drink because, of course, they've been traveling such a long way and they must be thirsty. Stories of the islands and the journey north on Living on Earth Storytelling Special. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Our music is different this week because it's time to take a break from news of the environment to celebrate the cool and dormant season in the north. We have a winter storytelling tradition here at Living on Earth as the sun hits its low point and folks get together. But you don't need short days to celebrate, and this year we've invited some storytellers from the Caribbean to share their fables and experiences from this time of year. It may not snow in the Caribbean, but come winter, the trade winds pick up and bring in a welcome coolness. With us to begin is Yvette Brandy. She's a native of St. Thomas with roots in St. Kitts. She's a speech therapist, singer, writer, and storyteller, and now lives in Pasadena, California. Welcome to Living on Earth, Yvette. Thank you. Now, what kind of memories do you have of Christmas in the islands? I know when people think of Christmas, for them it's cold and winter and they snuggle. But for me, Christmas is you wake up in the morning to scratch bands singing and dancing. And they're singing, good morning, good morning, I come for my guava berry. Good morning, good morning, put it on the table. And then the choir's singing behind it, and you give them something to eat, and they go to the next house. And then you're smelling tart baking and the ham in the oven. And that's what Christmas means to me. That's what I remember. Now, your family, as I understand it, is from St. Thomas uh, in the Virgin Islands, but also from St. Kitts. Mm -hmm. And at one point, the Danes had uh, the Virgin Islands, but not for very, very long. But the British and French held on to St. Kitts for a good while. Of course, both, both had slavery. So tell me a bit about the culture of the islands as you experienced it. My mother was born in St. Kitts, and so I would spend summers there with my grandparents. And I was born in St. Thomas. My mother was born in a small village called Monkey Hill, and there was no electricity yet. And there was no indoor plumbing yet. My grandmother um, worked in the cane fields, and so I understood that the ground that she now owned was hard-earned. And if she wanted to cook soup, she would send me into the garden to get the potatoes or to get the yams or to get the cassava, whatever she needed. It was right there, and so she taught me that. 
growing up in St. Thomas, where at that time it was an American island, was very different. Definitely we had indoor plumbing and electricity and all of that, but there was also the expectation that you would do well, that you would serve your family well, and that you represented your family every time you left your door. And so that was the expectation. Now, the islands uh, in the Caribbean, of course, for, for people that, uh, whose families came originally from Africa, mm-hmm. pretty much came as slaves. Yes. In fact, my great-grandmother was a slave. Um, she remembers that. She never knew who her parents were. She never knew who her siblings were. But she was expected to succeed, and so she built her own house. She had her own shop, and so she baked and sold goods. It was expected, regardless of your circumstances, you were supposed to rise above them because circumstances will always be there. Now, there's a Caribbean character, uh, a character who's well-known on many islands, apparently, and that's the Jumbi ghost. Yes. And I was hoping that you would tell us a Jumbi story today. I absolutely will. And a Jumbi, as you said, is a ghost. And you have many, many stories written about the Jumbi, and usually they're cautionary tales. They're there to teach you a lesson. And so the Jumbi story I'm going to tell to you today is called Mr. Lenneman and the Jumbi Dem. One day, Mr. Lenneman saw a piece of property he wanted to buy. But everybody knew how cheap he was, and he had no intention of spending that kind of money on that land. And so he went to the seller, and he offered him a price. He said, I want to buy that piece of property for that amount of money. The seller thought he was stone mortal crazy. Oh, I don't think so. Well, no matter what happened, Mr. Lenneman kept going lower. The seller got so frustrated with Mr. Lenneman. He said, okay, you know what? I have a bigger piece of property on the other side of the island. You could have that for whatever price you want. Well, Mr. Lenneman was so excited. Of course he took it. And he ran over there so fast. You mean you couldn't see him move? Next thing you know, he got there and he was like, but wait a minute, the land is bigger. And so he started, okay, let me think. What I'm going to do first? What I'm going to do first? I'm going to plant some corn. Then I could take it to the market and really make some good money. So he started to clear the property. So he pulled the bush. Next thing you know, he hear a voice say, Ahu data pull the bush. Mr. Lanaman turned around. He ain't see nobody. So he went back to pulling the bush. The voice say again, Ahu that I pulled the bush. Mr. Lanaman say, It's me, Mr. Lanaman. Then the voice say, Let we help Mr. Lanaman pull the bush. Big and little, get up, get up. Big and little, get up, get up. No bush left here today. There will be no bush left here today. The next thing you know, big hands, little hands, fat hands, skinny hands, just come up from under the earth and start pulling the bush. They clear the land in tutus. Huh. 
Mr. Lennerman was so happy with what he saw, he forgot how scared he was. You know, all he saw was free labor. He had them Jumbi plowing the land and planting the corn and maintaining the crops. The next thing you know, he had rows and rows of beautiful corn. He was so proud of himself. He called his wife up to take a look. The wife looked around and said, But honey, how you do all of this hair by yourself? He said, All by myself. Well, sir, he went down tongue to, to brag about it. And he told the wife before he left, Don't touch anything. She agreed. When Mr. Lanaman left, Mrs. Lanaman looked around and she was like, Lord, look at this can, no? My husband worked so hard, the least I could do is make him something from it. She pulled the can, and then a voice say, Ah, who that I pulled the can? Mrs. Lanaman turned around, she didn't see anybody. Ah, who that I pulled the can? It's me. Mrs. Lenneman, let we help Mrs. Lenneman pull the car. Big and little, get up, get up. Big and little, get up, get up. No can left here today, they will be. No can left here today. When Mr. Lenneman come back and he see all of his can gone, he was so mad. He said, woman, me ain't tell you not to touch nothing. He didn't even think straight. The next thing you know, he gives she one clout. Ah, who that a clout, he wife? Ah, who that a clout, he wife? It's me, Mr. Lanaman. Let we help Mr. Lanaman clout his wife. Big and little, get up, get up. Big and little, get up, get up. No wife left here today, there will be. No wife left here today. When Mr. Lanaman realized what he had done, he started bawling and a wailing, and he was standing there scratching his head. Ah, who that a scratchy head? Ah, who that a scratchy head? It's me, Mr. Lenneman. Let we help Mr. Lenneman scratch he head. Big and little, get up, get up. Big and little, get up, get up. No head left here today, there will be. No head left here today. Well... Round midnight, if you go walking through Shalatamali, you will find Mr. Lenneman's Jumbi looking for his wife and looking for his head. <laughs> oh, that's a scary story, huh? <laughs> so what's the moral of your story? That... <laughs> That you will definitely get what you buy. <laughs> that he thought he was getting this cheap piece of land for nothing. And there's always a price. There's always a price. Nothing in this life is free. And then I suppose be careful what you ask for. You may get it. Be huh? very careful what you ask for. Now, 
One thing I think about with the islands, of course, is carnival time. Yes. What relationship between the jumbies and carnival, if any? We have what we call the mukujumbis, and they're the guys that walk on stilts. Ooh. And um, legend has it that they're supposed to protect you from evil spirits. And so they're a little different in the sense that when you see a mukujumbi coming, that's something good. They're decked out in their um, costumes and music is blasting and they're dancing and it's a celebration of our carnival time and a celebration that we're here another year. Whereas if you see a jumbi coming, you might want to be careful. <laughs> Run the other way, huh? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so um, what was it like at carnival there in St. Thomas? Oh, it was fabulous. Um, carnival was weeks at a time. And you had music and the steel um, orchestras would compete against each other for panorama. And, of course, you'd have the parades. We had two parades, the children parades and, and, and the adult parade. And all of this was a huge celebration of our culture and our past and just saying thank you for another year. Well, I want to thank you so much for sharing those memories and those stories with us here on Living on Earth. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yvette Brandy tells stories, practices speech therapy, sings and writes and loves in Pasadena, California. Good morning, good morning. I come from a guava berry. Good morning, good morning. Put it on the table. Good morning, good morning. I wish you a Merry Christmas. Good morning, good morning. And a Happy New Year. Good morning. You're listening to a Living on Earth holiday special. Coming up next, memories of wild oregano and clove from Puerto Rico. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We continue now with our holiday storytelling special, and this year we're spending it with Caribbean storytellers. And now we're pleased to welcome a writer of three best-selling memoirs and two anthologies of Latino literature, Esmeralda Santiago. Esmeralda Santiago spent her young girlhood in rural Puerto Rico and then came of age in a place that couldn't be more urban, Brooklyn, New York. Esmeralda, thank you so much for being with us. Hi. Merry Christmas. Feliz Navidad. <laughs> thank you. So you have some really... I have to say they're delicious descriptions of Christmas or Navidad when, where you grew up with your sisters and brothers. I'm thinking uh, of the smells. Tell me what it's like to prepare for Christmas on the island. On the island, it, it is a feast for your nose because it's such a part of our cuisine to have highly aromatic food. And a lot of these things like oregano just grows wild, rosemary will just grow wild. Um, you know, you, you're, you're smelling the garlic, you're smelling the onion, the rosemary, the, the, the bay leaves, the ginger, the coconut, which is such a big part of Christmas, cinnamon, cloves. But also you're looking at these beautiful colors of uh, these spices and things that are only served at Christmas, you really can just walk around and just smell to your heart's content. <laughs> <laughs> now, in Puerto Rico, don't they have those little pigs that they serve special at the holidays? Well, we have the lechon, and that is a pig. 
I remember as a child that we would get the cerdo, and so it's called a cerdo while it's alive. It's called a pig while it's alive. And uh, my mother would feed it scraps from the table, and, and we would basically take care of this animal that would then be slaughtered for our Noche Buena meal, which was on the 24th of December. And so I grew up thinking of the animals that we had as part of our meals. They were not pets for me. <laughs> and uh, to this day, I really have a hard time with household pets because, you know, I think, why feed it if you're not going to eat it? <laughs> <So> <laughs> made it made it a little challenging when my children were growing up and wanted dogs and cats. And <laughs> Hey, can uh, we hear some of that music that uh, you would have played uh, as you were turning the suckling pig over the fire? I think you can, yes. You know, that's so bright uh, and, and, and cheerful to, to have as you're roasting your pig, huh? Yes, and this actually, that particular song speaks about something that is very much a part of the uh, Puerto Rican celebration of the holidays, and that is the parrandas. And the parrandas are just a group of people who get together with whatever instruments they have at hand, sometimes just their hands, uh, sometimes a can on a stick, and they go from house to house uh, singing these traditional songs, and all they expect is that the people there might maybe give them you know, something to drink, or if there's food, they get fed, but the whole idea is that everybody dances together, sings the songs together, and shares in the, the joyful spirit of the holiday season. And one of the, one of the words that, that is used the parrandas are the people who go from house to house, but when they actually arrive at your door, the whole idea is that they take you by surprise so that they love it when you have just gone to sleep, <laughs> and then all of a sudden there's people outside of your house um, singing and clapping, and this is called an asalto, and the idea is that then, you know, you're, you're wearing your rollers and your face creams, and you've been asleep <laughs> for a couple of hours, <laughs> so uh, I'm speaking from experience. <laughs> so, so you wake, you get up and open the doors, turn on all the lights, and immediately start cooking an asopao, or you pull out whatever you can find in the house to feed the musicians, give them something to drink. Some people make the traditional drink, coquito, which is um, coconut milk with rum and, and spices. And then you just have this big party until 
until daylight comes and then everybody leaves and sometimes you go back to bed or more frequently what happens is the householders then join the parrandas and go on to the next one, to the next person's house. Now, there are a lot of places uh, around the world that focus less on Christmas Day, if you're looking at the Christian tradition at the holidays, but more on Christmas Eve and then at Epiphany or in Latin America, it's called what, Three Kings Day? Sí, el Día de los Tres Reyes Magos, the Three uh, Magi's Days. And Christmas Day was really a day for reflection. It was You went to Mass. You, you pretty much slept from having been partying <laughs> all night. So, <laughs> so we, we actually opened our presents uh, on Nochebuena. And then what happens on, on the Three Kings Day? Well, on Three Kings Day, that's when uh, the three kings, the three magi who have been traveling for thousands of miles on their camels, come and leave presents for all the girls and boys who have been good little girls and boys that year. And in order to prepare for them, we, of course, try to be good little girls and boys, but we also try to curry favor by leaving delicious fresh grass for their camels in our shoes and leaving some water for the camel, for the, for the three kings to drink because, of course, they've been traveling such a long way and they must be thirsty. And we go to sleep, and the next day we get our three kings' gifts. And the tradition is, in fact, that that's when you get your big present is on the three kings. Day. Now, you have a story about uh, one Christmas, one uh, Navidad, when there was one thing that as a little girl you wanted so badly. Could you read uh, your story of that doll? I would be happy to read A Baby Doll Like My Cousin Jenny's. I was eight, and I wanted a baby doll like my cousin Jenny's, with pink skin and thick-lashed blue eyes that shut when we lay her down to sleep. The doll had no hair, but its plastic skull was traced with curved lines that ended in a curl on her forehead, painted chestnut. It was the size of a small baby, its chubby arms and legs slightly bent, its tiny fingers open to reveal a hand with deep furrows and mounds. I loved the way it smelled, rubbery sweet, and its round little body with a tiny, perfectly formed navel above its belly fold. The baby doll had no penis, but there was a little hole in her bottom at the end of the crease on her back that defined her tiny, flat buttocks. Christmas was coming. I could tell because the songs on the radio were about how much the singer needed a drink or about how his woman had left him alone and miserable through the holidays. There were other songs about the parrandas who went from house to house playing music in exchange for a piece of roasted pork or a pastel wrapped in a banana leaf or a shot of roncañita. The neighbors tied red crepe paper around hibiscus and gardenia bushes, hung crocheted snowflakes along the eaves of their tin roofs, displayed flaming poinsettias on their porches. The smells of Christmas floated from every kitchen, ginger and cloves, cinnamon and coconut, oregano, rosemary, garlic. Thick gray smoke curled from the backyards where pigs roasted, their skin crackling and sizzling to the scratching of guiros, the strumming of cuadros, the plaintive aguinaldos about the birth of Jesus on Nochebuena. While Nochebuena was the adult's holiday, El Día de los Tres Reyes Magos was for children, the day we'd wake to find the presents they delivered after traveling thousands of miles by camel. 
Papi helped me compose a letter, which I worked on for days, laboriously copying it over and over until there were no spelling errors and my request was clear. Dear Three Magi, I have been good this year. You can ask Mommy and Papi if you don't believe me. I would like a baby doll like my cousin Jenny's, with blue eyes that close. I hope you like the water I left and the grass for the camels. Have a good journey. Sincerely, Esmeralda Santiago, Negi. Papi gave me a sheet of paper from the ones he used to write his letters and poems and let me borrow his pen, which meant I couldn't make mistakes because the ink could not be erased. My sister Delsa asked me to write a letter for her. Ask them, she said, for a baby doll like the one Jenny has. But that's what I want, I said. We can both get one and pretend they're sisters. But I didn't want Delsa to have a doll like mine. So in Delsa's letter I wrote, Dear Three Magi, I have been good this year. I would like a doll, but not like the one you're giving Negi, so that we won't get confused. Sincerely, Delsa Santiago. I didn't ask Papi to check the spelling, and I wrote her letter on a piece of notebook paper. When Delsa complained, I told her the three magi would know she hadn't written it if the letter looked too fancy, since they knew she was only six years old and couldn't write very well. The days between Nochebuena and El Día de los Reyes were the longest two weeks of the year. Right in the middle, we celebrated New Year's with noisemakers and songs that no longer despaired of lonely holidays, but hoped for better days ahead. Mommy and Papi gave us cloth pouches filled with nuts and raisins, and we were allowed a sip from the coquito Mommy made, which tasted sweet and coconutty and made our heads spin if we sneaked more when our parents weren't looking. The night before the three magi were to come, my sisters and brother and I searched for the freshest, most tender blades of grass to leave in our shoes for the magi's camels. We placed the shoes under our beds, the toes sticking out so that the magi would see them. We cleaned out empty tomato sauce cans and filled them with water from the drums at the corners of the house. Then we lined them up by the door, my letter in front of my can and Delsa's in front of hers. The other kids complained that we had an advantage because we could write, but Mommy convinced them that the three magi knew what each of us liked, even without a letter. I woke up while it was still dark. Two shadows moved around the room, carrying bundles in their hands. I closed my eyes quickly. It must be two of the magi, I thought, while the third stays outside with the camels. Next time I woke, it was daylight, and Delsa was squealing in my ear. Look, Nagy, look! I got a baby doll, just like Jenny's! I scrambled out of bed, looked under it, found a flat rectangular package under my shoes. It didn't look wide enough to hold a baby doll. It was a box with a colorful painting of a racetrack divided into squares and stiff horses in various positions around it. Papi saw my disappointment and asked, Don't you like it? His face looked worried, and Mommy came and stood next to him and looked at me sadly. I wanted a doll, I cried, like that one. I grabbed the doll from Delsa's arms, and she grabbed it back and ran to a corner of the room. 
Mommy and Papi looked at each other. Mommy knelt and hugged me. You're a big girl. This game is for a big girl. Dolls are for little kids. But I want a doll, I sobbed. She looked at Papi, who took my hand and walked me to the yard. Across the room, Delsa undid the baby doll's dress, its pale pink skin glowing under her brown fingers. I'm sorry, he said. I couldn't afford two dolls, and she's younger. What? I'll get you a doll for your birthday. What happened to the three magi? Papi looked at me, his eyes startled, his lips pursed into a tight O. I'm sorry, he said, and hugged me. The end. <laughs> the end. <laughs> <laughs> you grow up to a certain age in Puerto Rico, but at a certain point, your your mom decides to take you, what, to, to New York City, where her parents were? I want you to go back for a moment to that apartment in Brooklyn, and you're 13 years old. Tell me how you got started telling stories. One of the strongest memories that I have of our first winter in Brooklyn was that we lived in an apartment that was three rooms, and it was uh, the apartment was not heated, which we didn't know when my mother rented it. So here it was, uh, my mother, my six sisters and brothers, the youngest of whom was about five, my grandmother and my grandmother's boyfriend, all living in this three-room apartment, and uh, which was unheated. So... In the evening, we would all gather in the kitchen because in the kitchen was the gas stove and my grandmother would light the oven and we would kind of sit around the oven and tell stories. And because I was the reader in the family, usually I began to tell a story, either something that I had read or something I had learned in school or more frequently something I completely made up on the spot. <laughs> and at some point, my mother would get up and say, go on, keep on telling the story. I'm just going to make some hot chocolate. And the way that she made hot chocolate was she begins by grating a big bar of dark chocolate and, and uh, melting it in a double boiler and then boiling the milk and boiling it several times because having grown up in the country, she still did not believe pasteurization um, would get rid of all the germs. So she still boiled it the way she did when we used to get the milk right from the cow. And we would all sit and have hot chocolate and saltine crackers as the stories are being told. And what was the story that your little sister kept asking you to tell over and over and over again? Well, they were all, they, they loved the stories about princesses in which the princess was a heroine. <laughs> so they, they really focused on this, this whole idea that we, we didn't like the, you know, sleeping princess and the prince comes through with the sword and yeah, 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 right. Okay. You know, we were raised by a single mother. So, <laughs> so we just didn't quite believe in the 
the the hero prince at all. And so the the stories that were the ones that that I was asked to tell were just these altered stories where I would begin with Cinderella or Snow White or any of the traditional fairy tale princesses, but it didn't end with her being rescued by a prince. It very likely would end up her rescuing the prince or just having some marvelous adventures or some marvelous uh, battles. And that was that was really a, uh, the things that they were most, most eager to hear about because we were little girls to, who had no power, really, and, and just envisioning ourselves as um, powerful princesses <laughs> was the one thing that we indulged in, uh, in the privacy of our own little kitchen with the open oven door. Esmeralda Santiago's next novel is going to be called Whisperings of Tropic Nights. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been really fun talking to you and uh, remembering my beautiful island and its lovely, lovely traditions. Me gustan las navidades que sepan a Puerto Rico comiendo pasteles y lechón asado y dando unos palitos de tierras lejanas vienen los tres reyes les sirve de guía Just ahead, how the steel pan was born in verse. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Well, we've arrived at the last segment of our holiday special where we've invited Caribbean storytellers to keep us warm with their yarns about plantation ghosts and feeding the camels of the three wise men. We've also heard about the spark of a career that was struck telling stories around a Brooklyn tenement stove. Now we're joined by a performer who's made his career telling stories, reciting poetry, and generally exaggerating. Ken Corsby hails from the far reaches of the Caribbean from Guyana on the northeastern coast of South America. He's also lived in Barbados and now makes his home in rural Long Island, New York. Welcome to Living on Earth, Ken. Hi, hi, Steve. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. Oh, thank you. Now, just tell us a bit about Guyana. I I think it's a place that most of us know very little about. Well, Guyana is actually a strange thing, although it's on the South American coast. It's actually considered politically, culturally... Caribbean islands. We call ourselves the West Indies. We are affiliated uh, culturally, socially, politically with the Trinidad, Barbados, Grenada, St. Vincent, St. Lucia, Antigua, and uh, not with South America, because um, although we're there, we never learned Dutch, which Suriname is one of our borders. Venezuela is Spanish, and we never learned Spanish in schools. Brazil is on our border, and we never learned uh, Brazilian Portuguese. So we are really English-speaking in that sense, which is a very odd thing for people to understand that, that although we're in South America, we're really part of the Caribbean islands. How did you think about the seasons when you were growing up and when you lived in Barbados? What were the seasons there? Uh, when I was growing up, there were four seasons. Um, dry season, short dry season, long dry season, short wet season, long wet season. That's it. <laughs> okay. That's our seasons. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice to be in a country where the seasons are regulated. Spring, summer, autumn, and winter. (laughs) (laughs) 
So you come all this way north. First you go north to England, and then you come to, to, to New York. In fact, you're living in New York uh, Yep, that's right, now. that's right. So tell me about adjusting to this country. Now here's the difference between living in the Caribbean and living here in northern North America. My wife and I, about seven years ago, decided to buy a house in, in Long Island. That was in February. I'm freezing outside, so I buy this house. In the Caribbean, I lived in my own house uh, for about 20 years, and all I had was a handsaw, a hammer, a screwdriver, and a cutlass, which is, you call a machete. That's all. I come here to find that the things you have to get to live here comfortably are astonishing. Autumn came, and you buy rakes to rake the leaves. You have to get a ladder to get onto the roof to get the, take the leaves off. And the winter comes, and you buy a shovel. And my wife says she has to get an ergonomic one. And you have to buy firewood, because one of the attractions in our house was this little fireplace I'd seen in so many Hollywood films. It was great. So I find out that there's a place there selling a cord of wood. Well, I don't know what a cord of wood, but it sounds good. So I order a cord of wood. Enough wood came to build a forest. <laughs> a truck dumped some wood about eight feet high and 20 feet across, filled up the entire driveway. Now we can't park our car. And then I have to buy an axe to cut the wood. Then I have to buy a sh- make a shed to put into which the wood must be put. And you buy a, a vacuum to clean the carpet, a, you know, a big one. But you have to buy a small one to, for, like one drop fall, you have to... Mm-hmm. And then you have to buy a carpet cleaner. It's another thing. We buy a humidifier that puts water into the air. Summer comes and you buy a dehumidifier that takes the water out of the air. And that is living in North America. (laughs) Ken, we've asked you on the show because we understand that you're an expert at one of the most important things about living in the Caribbean, living in the tropics, and that is eating a mango. Can we get the instructions from you? Well, they're... Okay, okay. (laughs) Eating a mango. You see, there are four ways to eat a mango. Accredited ways. The first way to eat a mango is the natural way. You you just hold it and you peel it off your mouth, your teeth, and let the juice fall all down to your elbow, and you just twist your elbow and you lick it off. There was a friend of mine named Mark. He was an expert at that, the natural way. If the mango dropped, juice fell down from his elbow onto his knee, he would bend down and lick it off. I've seen him lick mango juice off his toe. <laughs> now, don't laugh, because <laughs> because <laughs> eating mango the natural way like that made him an incredible storyteller. He has a tremendous body language, and he can, you know, and he got that ability from eating mangoes the natural way. So the other way to eat it is if you go to Barbados, Grenada, you carry it and you eat the mango in the sea, the salt and the sweet, and you can toss it there, it's biodegradable, no problem. But the third way is the technological way. A friend of mine named Ricardo Smith used that a lot. What you do is you take your mango and you take a penknife or something and you slice off a large slice as far as down, as close to the seed as you can. And you flip it over and you sort of tic-tac-toe or I don't know what you call it, crisscross it. And then you turn it inside out, you have these little squares and you'd eat them. And he, Ricardo Smith, used that method. And he became very successful because he used to eat mangoes the technological way. I'll tell you why. He learned to compartmentalize his life. 
to have things measured exactly in its place. And now he's living in a big house on a hill in Tobago overlooking the sea. Now, the last way was you squeeze the mass out, the right mango, squeeze it, squeeze it until it's softer. You nibble off a little piece on the top and then you suck it out. Squeeze it and suck it out. Mm. That was my way. And I'm not sure I can tell you what skills that taught me, but that was my way of drinking mangoes. But you know, no matter what style you use, at the end of it, you have to say, This mango sweet. Sweeter than honey and nice and antique. Underneath the mango tree, on this day I do decree, I'm your mango man, my darling. Hi, I want you so selfishly. Come barefoot and fancy free. You'll be waiting there for me, I'll be there for you, my darling. Hi, mango man. We're speaking with Ken Corsby, teller of tales at Caribbean Story Festivals. Ken, you're a professional storyteller and you have several CDs, so tell me, what's your experience of how people here in the U.S. view storytelling compared to the West Indies? They put limitations on what storytelling is. You see, For instance, I'm sitting right here in a studio and watching a tape by Spalding Gray. I see a, a video must be here on the desk. Spalding Gray. Great. To me, a great storyteller. But the storytelling community here tended to call him a monologist. He does monologues. He's not really a storyteller. I, for instance, do my... I do a stand-up comedy. But it's not like the one-liners. Like a lot of American storytellers are great at these one- and two-liners. They're beautiful. I tell little anecdotes, little stories, like jokes, if you wish, but it's, these are little stories. They may last 30 seconds or a minute, but it is. And I use that technique, too, when doing storytelling. I also do what I did a lot in the Caribbean was perform Caribbean poetry. Did a lot of poetry, and um, I'm not sure if they were all seen as stories unless they were strictly narrative. Here, I was told, for instance, don't act it, Ken. Tell it. You're merely a vehicle for the story. And I was saying that, you know, I'm on that stage. People watching me. So I found that tendency to want to limit you in various ways. There's an incredibly wide range of what story is now. Anything. Song. For instance, I, I wanted to sing a song to tell you one, one type of story. I could um, illustrate to you through song. All right. Uh, that I remembered a song by a friend of mine called Dave Martins. He runs a group called The Trade Winds. He lives in the Cayman Islands where I go every year to do a festival, storytelling festival. And he told me a story in song. He said, uh, a customer officer, a friend of mine, was telling me recently how to tell people's nationality. 
Look around any airport from New York up to Belgium and you can tell what nation somebody from. If a woman wearing a sari, she from Pakistan or India. A man in a maple leaf sweater, well, he from Canada. But if you see a man with a suitcase the size of a Cadillac, you can be sure that's a West Indian going back because you're traveling with ten pounds of flour, six pints of split peas, icing sugar, wear any suitcase, a bag of potatoes and a big slab of cheese, bicycle tires, wear any suitcase now. The airlines in every country had to pass a regulation just to control, yes, we West Indian. Seventy pounds on a suitcase, they say that is the limit. But our West Indian got that in his back pocket. Now in the USA and Canada, every time a West Indian going back, you know, it's two days he taking just to pack and when the bags arrive at the airport, them skycaps is run and hide in the washroom and refuse to come outside. <laughs> but when you see the traveling between the islands, you laugh until you cry. If you see the things we bring on the plane, believe me, I wouldn't lie. A bag of crabs stinking up the room, fried fish in a tin, a coconut broom, four breadfruit and two live chickens, because we travel with parts of a tractor, yes, a motor car seat too. <laughs> Nike sneakers in his suitcase, yes. Two dozen mackerel, a bag of salt beef, hi-fi speakers in his suitcase. <laughs> I use a lot of Calypso songs. In fact, the, um, in the Cayman Islands Storytelling Festival every November, runs for 10 days on the, a different beach every night we go to and tell. The main feature are Trinidadian Calypsonians who they bring in for the occasion who actually sing a lot of narrative and old-time calypsos, we call them. They're very lyrical and narrative and very funny and very witty. And, and, and one of the things I do, too, in case you didn't ask, <clears throat> was the Caribbean poetry, which I'd like to do just one short one here. Oh, please do. One of the most popular, in fact, probably the most popular and prolific storyteller, dialect, poet, what, call it what you will, is a man named Paul Keynes Douglas. He is... Trinidadian Grenadian. I am sometimes surprised when I, and I shouldn't be, of course, when I ask people, uh, an American audience, who has heard of Steel Band, ever heard of Steel Band play? And if there are 20, 30 people, five would say, six, I would say yes. In my ego of a Caribbean person, I say, oh, how can you not hear of Steel Band? How could you have not, never eaten a mango? Anyhow, so... How the steel band was born. The steel band, as you know, made of oil drums. It cut down to various heights to give a high note, low note, mid note, deep note, bass notes. And the steel band nowadays, which started very primitively, has ended up to be bands of 30 and 40 playing classical music, high-class classical music, and being judged by adjudicators of classical music. Anyway, how was the steel band born? I'll tell you why, how Paul Keynes Douglas says. He says, Once long ago, not so long ago, when the story I'm telling is true, a man take a pan with a hammer in his hand, cool, so he invent something new. It was an ordinary drum in which the oil used to come. It didn't make no particular sound. One note, maybe two, you could beat it till you blew. That was all it could do for you. 
Until the man take the pan with the hammer in his hand and he say how he understand that if the pan making one and the pan making two, then the pan can make quite a few. So the man take the pan with the hammer in his hand and he stoop down there on the ground and he hit it and he beat it and he stretch it and he mark it and the pan start to make a new sound. Yes, the pan start to make a new sound. It go... Yes, a do, re, mi, and a mi, re, do. That was all he could make it say. But it sounds so sweet, he take it on the street. It was the first time they hear Pan play. And all where he gone, the crowd got around to hear the sweet notes that he pound. And none will forget the day that they fed, the day that the steel band was born. And since that time, all over the land, you hear the sweet sound of Pan. How they hit it and they beat it and they stretch it and they mark it like the man with the hammer in his hand. How he hit it and he beat it and he stretch it and he mark it and the pan start to make a new sound. Yes, the pan start to make a new sound. Now, what I'd like you to do, Steve, at the end of every um, little two lines here, I want you to say, oh yeah, like I say. Okay. They make a tenor pan and they make an alto pan and they come and make a double tenor too. Oh yeah. They make a cello pan and they make a guitar pan. Now we're taking 60 men to make a band. Oh yeah. A do, re, mi, and a fa, so la, di, do. Ain't no place the pan can't go. Oh, yeah. Upper class, middle class, lower class, no class. Classics took a lip, so. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Born in the streets of Trinidad, it has now gone far and wide. Oh, yeah. And there ain't no stopping and there ain't no staying. It's the sound of a people's pride. Oh, yeah. So when you hear the beat of steel band in the street and the rustle of a thousand feet, Remember that man with the hammer in his hand who put the first notes on a pan. How he hit it and he beat it and he stretched it and he marked it, stooped down there on the ground. How they hit it and he beat it and he stretched it and he marked it and the pan started to make a new sound. Yes, the pan started to make a new sound, yeah. And the pan started to make a new sound. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And oh, the yeah. pan started to make a new sound. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. <laughs> Ken Corsby is a storyteller who's from Guyana. He's also lived in Barbados, and he now makes his home in rural Long Island, New York. Thanks so much, Ken. Well, it's just great. Okay, all the best, Steve. Thanks a lot. is produced by the World Media Foundation. This week's holiday program was produced by Ingrid Lobet. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Helen Palmer, Emily Taylor, and Jeff Young. Our interns are Alexandra Gutierrez and Mitra Taj. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening, and happy holidays.
Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Skull Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs around the world. Uncommon heroes dedicated to the common good. Learn more at skull.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.